Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted June 30th, 2017, we talk with journal editor Christopher Shea about the jailing of Philippine Senator Leila de Lima after she condemned President Rodrigo Duterte's murderous vigilante war on drugs, as well as other top features in the new WPJ summer issue, cover line Justice Denied. But first, some timely insights from global affairs analyst and author Michael Moran, head of Transformative.io, risk and geostrategy consultants. Thanks, David. With Washington focused on the Senate's efforts to repeal Obamacare, the new Trump administration has fired a cryptic salvo across the bow of Syria's regime and that of its Russian and Iranian allies, citing intelligence that suggests another banned use of chemical weaponry by Syrian President Bashar Assad may be in the offing. The White House warned of the high cost Syria will pay if such an attack does occur. U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Nikki Haley followed up with a tweet saying the U.S. would regard Iran and Russia as complicit in such an attack. What that portends is unclear, and it probably was meant to be so. But the idea that Assad may again resort to chemical weapons has to be taken seriously. His forces are making slow progress against his opponents on the ground, and his regime may well think that a chemical attack of the kind that killed over 80 civilians in April is worth the cost. That attack brought retaliatory U.S. cruise missile strikes on a regime airbase. But it also accompanied a successful Syrian ground offensive, and it may be a push on one of those main opposition strongholds is in the offing now. Syria's so-called moderate opposition holds Idlib and Darya in the west, while ISIS retains hold of its capital, the central Syrian city of Raqqa. Assad may regard the capture of any of them as far more important than any reaction the U.S. is likely to muster. A bit closer to home, the once apocalyptic language applied to Mexico and NAFTA has subsided, leaving in its place the kind of diplo-negotiator-speak familiar to anyone who followed the progress of the stillborn Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP, accord in the Obama years. A long-expected announcement in May from U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer that President Trump intends to renegotiate the deal confirmed that there would be no ripping up of NAFTA, something the candidate had promised repeatedly before taking office. Instead, Lighthizer's note to Congress began a 90-day waiting period before U.S. negotiators can officially sit down and start rewriting the accord with their Canadian and Mexican counterparts. With the unofficial start of 2018's midterm elections taking place on Labor Day, pressure will be on Trump to get some kind of concessions from Mexico, even as other trade and foreign policy campaign promises flounder. The wall on the border appears to be a non-starter due to high costs and Republican balking. There's been no assault on China's trade practices to speak of, no move to rip up the U.S.-Iran nuclear accord, and early talk of a renewed Israeli-Palestinian mediation effort has been backburnered too. So what's in store for NAFTA? Mexico's president has little incentive to bend, given that his country chooses his successor in July 2018. My guess is that economically significant results will prove elusive in NAFTA talks, though the Trump team will characterize any small change as a victory for the American worker. Regardless, few, if any, jobs are coming back to the United States. That's it for this week. For World Policy On Air, this is Michael Moran.
listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. Non-bailable. Bahala na po ang aking mga abogado kung ano po ang legal remedy na gagawin nila dyan sa questionable nga pong pagka, pagkaka-issue ng order of arrest and warrant of arrest ngayon. There were tears in her eyes at points during ousted Philippine Senator Leila de Lima's last press conference before surrendering to arrest and incarceration earlier this year on what many called preposterous charges of being a drug queen. Preposterous, but also predictable, if also ironic, because de Lima has been perhaps the most outspoken critic of Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte's vigilante mass murder campaign against fairly or unfairly suspected drug dealers and users, a death toll estimated at 7,000 over Duterte's first six months in office. An exchange with the Lima behind bars is thus an appropriate centerpiece for the new summer issue of World Policy Journal. Cover line, Justice Denied. And to preview all the content in it, from Egypt to Germany, Chad to Honduras and beyond, we talked recently with WPJ editor Christopher Shea for this podcast. His introductory editor's note is headlined, Criminal Injustice. Christopher Shea, welcome back to World Policy on Air. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, let's start with the incarcerated Leila de Lima. Not the usual World Policy Journal conversation. How was it done? Uh, so Senator Leila de Lima is still confined to a prison cell. She's been incarcerated since February of this year and she has no access to a phone or the internet. Um, Her staff, however, visits her once a week. And so we reached out to uh, an an assistant of the senator uh, who personally took questions to to Senator DeLima. And despite being incarcerated, the senator still writes these long handwritten missives reacting and commenting on the news. So even though she's confined to a prison cell, it hasn't stopped her from speaking out against Uh, Duterte and his government. And she answered all your questions. She sure did. She is a former human rights activist. Uh, She denies taking money to protect drug dealers when she was the country's justice minister, an allegation against her made by Duterte himself after she condemned his bloody war on drugs, as the UN, the EU, uh, other nations and international organizations have done. Uh, though not so much U.S. President Donald Trump. How does she explain Duterte's continuing popular support despite all this criticism? According to DeLima, uh, Duterte's popularity was initially driven by a uh, upwardly mobile middle class and the upper classes um, who were afraid of what DeLima calls blue-collar crime. Uh, and so these, these classes wanted to, according to DeLima, protect their private enclaves and subdivisions. And it was the rich, according to DeLima, who've been raised to look for quick fixes. Um, And Duterte's war on drugs to DeLima was just another quick fix uh, for for the upper class, a sort of promise to uh, get rid of uh, um, uh, drug users and drug dealers across the Philippines. The state is bodyguard. Exactly, exactly. Uh, but once in power, Duterte was able to mobilize the, the full state apparatus to make his national narrative dominant. Duterte repeatedly drilled this punitive message that, according to Lima, um, uh, 
quote, may have resonated with the public blinded by exploited emotion. Um, Lima does note, however, that the latest polls show Duterte's approval ratings starting to decline. Um, she notes that Duterte hasn't reduced poverty or, or helped workers in any ways, and that Duterte's high ratings are normal for a president's first year, and that his support may be finally waning. After exploiting mass murder to maintain his power, and, and perhaps seeing the polls himself, uh, Duterte may be moving towards creation of a ruling dynasty, the Lima fears. Tell us what she said about that. Yeah, so she, she, she made the claim that Duterte is considering um, introducing his daughter, who is currently the mayor of Davao City, um, which Duterte uh, was, was also once mayor, um, to the presidency. So Delima is also afraid that Duterte might try and uh, prolong his rule. And, and so she, she compares D Duterte's rule so far to uh, the Marcos dictatorship. And, and she notes that none of those sort of normal democratic institutions survived the Marcos and had to be rebuilt from scratch afterward. She also commented on the role of sexism and misogyny in Duterte's support and the case against her in particular. She sure did. She says that there's no doubt that Duterte is a misogynist and a chauvinist and, and really regrets the way in which the accusations against her in the Congress sort of became, um, uh, became a sort of media circus that really took advantage of the sexism in Philippine society and sort of made her, where she wasn't taken seriously as a, uh, as a leading politician. Because besides the drug charges, there were allegations of her uh, sexual encounters, and uh, it really did uh, introduce a kind of sexist, misogynist element to uh, what, even, even preposterous as it was, it was a serious charge. Correct. And the, the, the accusations and the media reporting um, uh, about her sex life obviously had nothing to do with... Um, uh, what the preposterous charges against her were, and also about um, her critique on uh, her critiques of Duterte. Besides her exchange with uh, WPJ, talk more about how the Lima continues her opposition and what internal and external forces she thinks finally can curb Duterte's violence. So, uh, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the Lima is writing these these long handwritten uh, critiques, uh, policy critiques from her cell that then get, that she gives to her staff and then are photographed and scanned and uh, um, disseminated across the Philippines. So she's, so she's not letting prison muffle um, uh, her, her voice. Um, and she says that... Um, within the country's civil service and security apparatus, that there's a, she calls it a, a crisis of dissonance. She, she doesn't go as far to call it uh, resistance within the civil servants, but she points out that Duterte um, is close to China and the Communist Party of the Philippines, and those are traditional enemies of the Philippine Armed Forces and uh, the rest of the security apparatus. Uh, and so she argues with, with this in mind, Senator DeLima says that the armed forces would, would not back 
Duterte if he tried to dissolve the Constitution. The armed forces are not necessarily aligned with Duterte and could represent a curb on um, uh, any future grabs of power. Uh, In terms of what needs to happen from outside the Philippines, Lima says other countries need to make sure that grants and loans to the Philippines won't go to finance the death squads. Though the Philippines may be an extreme case, your editor's note makes the point that many governments have taken a punitive approach to drug problems, ignoring overwhelming evidence that it doesn't really work. What does? A harm reduction approach, uh, an approach that treats addiction as a public health issue. Um, there's, there, there's a moment in uh, Baz Dreisinger's piece on the Singaporean criminal justice system in this issue where where Dreisinger wonders how Singapore can have such harsh uh, drug laws while offering such little treatment. Um, drug rehab in, in the U.S. Can, can still be a shoddy process, Dreisinger admits, but even here in the U.S., there's more access to evidence-based behavioral treatment, like cognitive behavioral therapy, which helps addicts recognize ad- addiction triggers. So, so there are other approaches, and... Um, uh, these evidence-based approaches do work um, much better than than trying to uh, increase the harshness of laws. And at least in the U.S., you do appear to be seeing a um, um, a turn in the policies. Say more about the negative impact of force in law enforcement generally, as outlined by University of Chicago Law School professor, you quote. Uh, so Aziz Huck, um uh, argues in in his piece that a person's experiences with the state, especially in these small intimate encounters, like with police or in the courtroom, but that these encounters shape um, the person's motivation to comply or not to comply with the law. Um, and and w- what this means is that instead of m- meeting a community with a show of force instead of trying to intimidate a community or potential lawbreakers. Um, Hundreds of studies have shown to reduce lawbreaking. What works better is for police to be transparent, to be even-handed, and and to show a little courtesy. Um, Whereas an an, an aggressive, militarized police force uh, Aziz Hook argues and, and has shown in some of the studies that he's worked on that this militarized police force only serves to deter communities from working together with the police. Another article in the new issue illustrates the backlash against government brute force in Egypt. What's the bottom line there? The, the bottom line, according to our writer, uh, Maya El-Sadani, is that LCC is changing the laws to, to codify oppression and make it nearly impossible to challenge uh, police or state abuses in courts. Um, arbitrary arrests and state violence aren't new in Egypt, but in the past at least the, the mistreatment could potentially be challenged in court. Now, under, under state of emergency policies, these abuses can, can go unchecked. Um, Nonetheless, it should be noted that critics of LCC persist, um, albeit under um, increased surveillance and fewer legal protections. We talked about misogyny before. Racism and xenophobia play a role in Germany's sometimes deadly unequal justice, according to another summer issue story. Say more about that 
and how injustice in the United States is also a factor in that German situation. Yeah, um, our author, Eddie Bruce Jones, who's both an anthropologist and a, a lecturer of law, um, argues that r racism and xenophobia pervades the criminal justice in Germany. Um, he focuses on one particular case of, of a death of a migrant from Sierra Leone in police custody in Germany and shows that Throughout the investigation and the prosecution of, of the case, r racism kept playing a role in oftentimes in subtle and, and unsubtle ways alike. Um, but too often G Germans think of racism the way racism exists in the United States, that somehow the U.S. has a monopoly on anti-black racism. Um, and, and it's become an excuse um, or a block for many Germans um, that's preventing German society to confront the unequal treatment in their own justice system. Uh, the idea being is if it's, you know, it's, it's always the, the always excuses is that it's, it's so much worse in the United States, so it can't be as bad, so it can't be bad here. When the <laughs> situations are different, and just because it, there might be more police deaths in the U.S. doesn't mean that it's not a problem in Germany. Let's talk about a few of the other stories on uh, justice denied in the new issue, starting with a lawsuit by Honduran farmers against a lending arm of the World Bank. So the writer of that piece, Lauren Karasek, is, is actually a co-counsel in that case, uh, helping to represent the Honduran uh, farmers who are suing the World Bank Group in a U.S. federal court. Um, so the World Bank's private lending arm, the, the IFC, lent money to an oligarch-owned agribusiness allegedly connected to uh, local death squads in Honduras. And, and Karasek argues that the World Bank Group should be held accountable for fueling this violent land conflict, um, while the, the World Bank Group, for, for its part, argues that as an international organization, it's um, immune from prosecution. So that's a... Um, a very interesting case that, that we'll, we'll, we'll all be watching going forward. Uh, you mentioned the article uh, on Singapore headlined, Please Don't Mind Our Tattoos. Tell us more about that. So in, in this piece, Baz Dreisinger, who's a professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, travels to Singapore to investigate the island nation's rehabilitation program. Um, and since instituting this, this new... Um, it's a program that includes halfway houses for uh, the formerly incarcerated as well as uh, job training and job programs. Recidivism rates have fallen by nearly 50%, which is a huge number. Um, yet, um, yet Dreisinger d discovers that the, the motivation to find jobs uh, for the formerly incarcerated is driven m more by a fear of foreign workers um, and a glut of low-level jobs that need filling than any moral calculus. Uh, there's also an argument that nature needs more legal standing. So in this piece, Mari Margul at the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund um, says that the, the law as it currently stands in most places treats land only as property to be exploited. Um, even regulations only talk about how um, the exploitation can be curbed, but it doesn't sort of 
move away from the understanding of the, of the environment as anything other than pro property. So instead, Margot argues that the law should recognize the, the fundamental rights of nature. Uh, and she's part of this growing movement to, to uh, do nothing less than rethink humankind's relationship to the environment. Um, and you're sort of starting to see these, these, uh, these moments where um, uh, nature is given a sort of legal standing. Uh, in, in Ecuador, a river went to court against the government for degrading it, and, and the river won. Um, and even here in the U.S., um, a watershed defended itself against an oil and gas corporation that was trying to install fracking wastewater injection wells. So this recognition that nature deserves certain rights and should be um, recognized in court and in our laws as having rights is a, a nascent, growing, and, and exciting movement that uh, uh, Mari Margul explores in her piece. That's fascinating. The big question feature uh, in this new issue is headlined, What Legacies of Colonialism Prevent Indigenous Peoples from Achieving Justice? Uh, I was surprised to see that the response from Kenya finds a very old U.S. Supreme Court decision partly to blame. What's the connection? So, so the author of that piece, uh, Kenyinki Sena, is a Maasai law professor. Um, and he, he makes a point of talking about how the a British common law system was in, imposed on the country. Um, and like in many Commonwealth um, nations based on British common law, uh, it's fairly common, it's, it's not unusual for um, foreign case law to be uh, considered when building a legal argument. Um, in this particular case, uh, the British colonial powers used this 1823 Supreme Court case, Johnson versus McIntosh, uh, to, to justify their um, territorial uh, expansion and claims of the area. Um, and so in, in the U.S. Supreme Court, and, and this is the, the, the Marshall Court, this is one of the, the more famous U.S. Supreme Courts, um, ruled that a European power has the right to any land that they, quote, discover. Um, and, and this was a, a decision that um, could be used to legally justify um, all sorts of um, violent expropriation of indigenous lands. And it wasn't just limited to the U.S. It's sort of an interesting case. Uh, le legal tactics get um, replicated elsewhere. Well, that's a very old decision. Talk about the way that very contemporary concerns about terrorism uh, in Chile have uh, weighed against indigenous peoples' attempts to reclaim ancestral lands there. Ah, so from Chile, uh, another law professor, uh, Juan Vargas Biancos, um, says that the state's decision to employ an anti-terrorist law against indigenous activists has, has really backfired. Um, the, the move has been largely interpreted as a way to criminalize dissent, and it's only fueled um, more unrest. Um, while, while the decision to employ an anti-terrorist law might be contemporary, the, the root of the conflict goes back to the 19th century, when the Chilean military and sed settlers invaded and occupied uh, the territory. And today, um, many M M Mapuche, the, the largest indigenous group in the area are, are trying to reclaim uh, that lost land. And that's sort of, th that's the, the core part of um, 
uh, of the unrest there at the moment. From Canada came not only another example of uh, colonialism's legacy, but a possible solution that might work elsewhere. Tell us about the Gladu principle, where it got its name and how it works. So the Gladu principle uses a restorative justice model to sentence indigenous defendants. It, it requires judges to weigh the effects of colonization, discrimination, and racism, um, and to consider the support systems available to offenders. Um, it's loosely inspired by native law, but, it, but it's not a sovereign indigenous court. It's, it's, a, it's a regular Canadian court that is incorporating um, notions from native law. Um, and it comes from a, a, a court decision that ruled that the restorative justice model would be uh, more appropriate and uh, a more just way of dealing with indigenous defendants. And you see hopeful signs for more fair and equal justice generally from many of the reports in the new issue. It's true, um, but criminal justice r remains elusive uh, throughout much of the world. Um, but what became clear to me doing this issue is that researchers and academics um, are developing new intellectual frameworks for demilitarization, for rehabilitation, for, um, for environmental justice. Um, and so, so the ideas for instituting a better um, and more fair justice system are out there. They, they are available for, for people. Um, and at the same time, uh, grassroots organizers are still refusing to give up their fight to end um, more, more punitive systems of justice. Uh, in, in Mari Margul's piece, she, she writes, um, for governments to make the right choice, but through the lens of history may appear as the only choice, they must be made to do it. Um, and the activists and thinkers in this issue and, and discussing this issue are, are, are doing just that. Um, they're pushing for these better, um, better systems of justice. And despite, despite a global lurch toward authoritarianism, which we, we explored in the previous issue, I think there is a cause for optimism. Um, and it's thanks, to, um, it, it's thanks to all those who for years have been exposing the injustices, the injustices of the system and kept demanding better. So I think there is, I think there is hope in the, in the issue, even if the issue itself exposes punitive and sometimes cruel systems of justice. Christopher, thank you. Thank you. Christopher Shea is the editor of World Policy Journal. His introductory essay for the new summer issue is headlined, Criminal Injustice. Since we spoke, the U.S. Supreme Court began to address the delicate balance of justice and national security regarding travel visas, immigration, and refugees. It authorized President Trump's temporary bans on visitors, immigrants, and refugees from six mostly Muslim countries, but with major exceptions for those with bona fide ties to close family or institutions in the U.S., including schools and workplaces, but maybe not resettlement agencies. And the case could become moot as those temporary bans to set up better screening, the administration argues, may run out before the justices hear arguments over lower court injunctions in the fall. Also last week, a new Pew poll showed a median of 62% opposition to Trump's immigration restrictions, 
among 40,000 respondents in 37 countries. Only a 54% median felt that the U.S. respected civil liberties at home. Only 43% liked American-style democracy versus 46% who disliked it. And only 22% had confidence that Trump would do the right thing in world affairs. Overall favorable opinion of the U.S. fell to a median of just 49% from 64% in the final years of Barack Obama, although Americans as individuals still rated 58% favorable. In the new WPJ summer issue, cover line Justice Denied, you'll find articles about Trump's new militarism, the mental health crisis for wartime rape victims, disruptive and imperiled New Berlin, and why Western fundraising fails to stop the spread of AIDS elsewhere. And listen next week when our podcast will focus on a new book predicting the emergence of a, quote, climate leviathan to counter the global environment crisis. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor, Christopher Shea. Online news editor, Laurel Jerombeck. Podcast producer, Anna Grace Carter. I'm David Alpern.